WORT Summer Festival is coming. Join us at Warner Park on Sunday, May 21st from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. We'll have a wide variety of live music. We'll also have food and craft vendors, an arts activity area, and plenty of space in beautiful Warner Park. Find out more information at wortfm.org. See you there. This is Jonah Chester and Sean Bull with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Republican lawmakers have introduced a bill that would make hospitals post their prices for over 300 procedures. While federal law already requires hospitals to post prices of their procedures, lawmakers contend that the bill would allow the state to enforce the law, the Associated Press reports. Under the proposed bill, hospitals that do not post their prices could face a fine up to $10,000 per day, depending on the size of the hospital. The Wisconsin Hospital Association contends that the bill is unnecessary and a duplication of effort. But lawmakers say the bill would help create competition in the healthcare industry, leading to lower prices. Oral arguments in a lawsuit looking to throw out Wisconsin's abortion ban begin in Dane County Court tomorrow morning, Wisconsin Public Radio reports. Attorney General Josh Call filed the lawsuit last summer, immediately after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. This is considered to be the first step in the long and protracted legal battle before the case gets to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. We'll have more on what's said during those oral arguments tomorrow evening. Caught? Cases of Lyme disease have been on the rise in Wisconsin and have doubled on average in the last 15 years. Wisconsin regularly reports some of the highest cases of Lyme disease in the country. NBC15 reports that as our winters become warmer and warmer, more and more ticks survive each year. In 2021, Wisconsin had nearly 5,000 estimated cases of Lyme disease but the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that the total number of cases is more than 10 times higher than what is reported. A county-funded school-based mental health support program that has served hundreds of young people and their families will expand this year, County Executive Joe Parisi announced today. Since the program began a decade ago, Dane County Building Bridges has grown to 11 local school districts with an annual county budget allocation of over $1.9 million. Local school districts share the cost of the program. With the additional funding in this year's county budget, both the Sun Prairie Area School District and the Madison Metropolitan School District will add another Building Bridges staff team to their networks. With this program expansion, every school district in Dane County will be engaged in the Building Bridges program. UW-Madison students staged a protest outside of Chancellor Jennifer Mnookin's office today over a racist video that drew widespread condemnation from campus and community leaders. The video, which circulated the campus earlier this week, shows a white student saying racial slurs and violent remarks towards black people. The Daily Cardinal reports that hundreds of students held a sit-in in front of the Chancellor's office today with a list of nine demands. Those demands include the immediate expulsion of the student from the video, as well as a public apology from the university. 
Chancellor Mnuchin did address the student protesters, saying she will take in the demands. And now, on to today's top stories. In addition to cutting paid parental leave, legalized marijuana, PFAS protections, and hundreds of other items out of Governor Evers' budget yesterday, Republicans voted not to expand Medicaid for over 1 million Wisconsinites. Democrats and community advocates say that not only will not expanding Medicaid cost the state more in the long run, but it will force families across the state to make tough decisions if they want to stay insured. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has more. The state's GOP-controlled budget writing committee axed over 500 items from Governor Evers' budget yesterday, including a provision to utilize federal funds to expand Medicaid in Wisconsin. Wisconsin is one of only 10 states that have not accepted a federally allowed expansion of Medicaid. Here in Wisconsin, the majority of those on Medicaid are on the state's Badger Care program. That expansion would allow people with an income of up to 138% of the federal poverty level to enroll in the program. For a family of four, 138% of the federal poverty level is $41,400 a year. The current income cutoff for Medicaid is $39,900 a year. While Republicans didn't give a specific reason to cutting Medicaid yesterday, the co-chairs of the Joint Finance Committee said what they cut was just reckless spending. Speaking at a press conference yesterday, Senator LaTanya Johnson, a Democrat from Milwaukee who sits on the Joint Finance Committee, said that expanding Medicaid is about saving money. In the next two years, this would have saved our state $1.6 billion in GPR and gained us an additional $2.2 billion in federal funds. Since the 2013-15 budget, Wisconsinites have spent over $2 billion more in GPR to ensure fewer people. Expanding Medicaid isn't just a money issue, says Citizen Action of Wisconsin, a nonprofit advocacy organization. They say that not expanding Medicaid is forcing families to make tough choices. Peggy McDowell is a member of Citizen Action Wisconsin, and she says that she's faced those tough choices herself when she and her husband of over 40 years retired and began receiving their retirement income. My income combined with his um, made us $100 per year over the amount that would allow us to be eligible for Medicaid. Um, $100 a year doesn't buy much of a Medigap plan, and uh, we decided the best way to go forward was to get divorced. And we did. Others contend that expanding Medicaid could help address Wisconsin's workforce shortage. According to the state's Department of Workforce Development, Wisconsin's unemployment rate fell to a record low of 2.5 percent in March of this year while continuing to create new jobs. Julia Benneker works in child care in the Eau Claire area. She says that if she works too many hours, then her wages will go above the limit currently allowed to be enrolled in Medicaid. While this would unenroll her from Medicaid coverage, Benneker says she wouldn't be making enough to have private health insurance. I am a professional in an in-demand field, but because Badger Care expansion has been blocked in Wisconsin, I have to work less in order to afford what I need to take care of myself and be helpful to others. Badger Care expansion can help us solve this child care crisis. We need Badger Care expansion to be accepted into this budget so that thousands of other people like me can get the care they need. 
Thanks to a federal provision, those who signed up for Badger Care just before the COVID-19 pandemic were guaranteed coverage for the duration of the federally declared emergency. As of March of this year, over 1.6 million Wisconsinites were enrolled in Medicaid, and data from the State Department of Health Services shows that Medicaid enrollment in Wisconsin has grown by almost 40 percent since the start of the pandemic. But that number could shrink over the next year as federal pandemic-era protections come to an end. What's happening now is what the state health department is calling an unwinding of services and enrollment. Essentially, while folks on Medicaid were guaranteed coverage during the pandemic, those on the program will now have to begin renewing their coverage to remain eligible for the program. According to the Capital Times, an estimated 72,000 Wisconsinites will lose their coverage in the process. Medicaid renewal deadlines will begin to roll out next month and continue until May of next year. While Republicans voted yesterday not to expand Medicaid, they also voted to strip out several Medicaid-related items from the budget as well. One of those measures cut yesterday would have allowed Medicaid users to use doulas when giving birth. In addition to bringing on better birthing outcomes for low-income pregnant people, Senator LaTanya Johnson says that allowing Medicaid users to utilize doulas would save the state money as well. So on average, a low birth weight baby or a preterm birth costs on average $55,000 per year. That's real money. But it's assumed that doula, um, doula services provide a 6% decrease for women enrolled in Badger Care Plus, approximately $1,300 per year, who access doula services would see a decrease in not only better birthing outcomes, but it would cost the state $770 for each service provided. The Joint Finance Committee will meet again tomorrow for more budget deliberations. Once both the Senate and Assembly pass the budget later this summer, the budget will go back to Evers' desk, where he can veto either individual parts or the entirety of the budget. If no budget is agreed on by July 1st, state spending will continue at levels set in the current budget. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. Beaches in Madison had to close due to toxic algae blooms fewer times last year than they had since at least 2017. That's because less phosphorus and other pollutants made their way into Madison's lakes last year, leading to a healthier lake system overall. That's according to the Clean Lakes Alliance, who released their latest State of the Lakes report earlier today. That report says that the water in the Yahara chain of lakes is the clearest it's been in years. To learn more, WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt spoke with Paul Dearlove with the Clean Lakes Alliance earlier today. For the last decade, the Clean Lakes Alliance has released their annual State of the Lakes report documenting the health and quality of the five lakes on the Yahara chain. This year's report was released earlier today, and to learn more, I'm joined by Paul Dearlove, Deputy Director and Chief Science Officer with the Clean Lakes Alliance, who authored the report. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for talking with me. Good afternoon. Happy to be here. Now, Paul, just to begin, uh, what did you find in your latest State of the Lakes report? What is the current state of our lakes here in Dane County? Well, it's it's uh, first of all, it's always a complicated story because we do get get that question a lot. Like, how are the lakes lakes doing? And we have 
five main lakes in our, our chain of lakes, and each lake is quite unique. So each lake behaves a little bit differently than the, than the others, although they are part of the same chain um, connected by the Ahara River. And depending on what you look at, uh, it, you could sort of come to a, a different conclusion regarding the, the, the story of health for our lakes. So whether you're looking at just a snapshot in time or what's been happening over multiple years, uh, it, can, it can be a, a multiple layers of the onion that you got to peel back. But in general, what we found is last year for the 2022 State of the Lakes report is that we actually had a pretty phenomenal year um, on a com- comparative basis uh, when looking at prior years. And we attributed a lot of that, um, not just to the drier weather that we had that uh, sent less phosphorus and and pollution to the lakes, but also the great work that the uh, larger community is doing to keep polluted runoff from reaching our surface waters. And tell me a little bit about uh, those sort of community works that are working to keep some of those pollutants out of our water and and anything else that you're sort of looking at when preparing this report that plays a, a big factor into the health of the lakes? So we, we generally look at, at, at five uh, main areas. Uh, we call them our five areas of analysis when we, when we try to paint that picture uh, or put that puzzle together to figure out what the, what the health of our lakes are looking like. They include what's happening in terms of the weather. So in particular, what, what does the precipitation look like over the watershed? So the watershed is that land area that funnels surface water to the, to the lakes. And that surface water runoff can carry any material that's has collected or accumulated on the landscape and it'll direct it to our surface waters. So whether or not we have a wet or dry year makes a, a, a big impact on our lakes and particularly when that rainfall is happening. So we're starting to see more rain, as, as people are well aware, we're starting to see warmer winters, and therefore oftentimes rain um, in February, you know, or times when we didn't previously see rain. And that, that does make a difference because that rain cannot get into the ground, so it runs off the ground and it, and it picks up whatever it can carry and sends it to the lake. So weather is, is one thing we look at. We also look at, the well, we should say that the number one source of, of turning our lakes green and creating algae blooms is phosphorus. And phosphorus is contained in soil and fertilizer and organic debris like leaves and so forth. And um, the amount of phosphorus that's in the watershed itself makes a, a big difference on lake health. So we track how much phosphorus is being produced in the watershed, how much is staying in the watershed, and then how much is actually being exported um, or, or leaves the watershed. Uh, we also look at practices that happen on the landscape. So what we do as an organization is we try to get different stakeholders with around the lakes to adopt behaviors or practices that are going to be a good thing for water quality. So putting in rain gardens, attaching a rain barrel to a downspout, removing leaves from the street gutter, things like that. Those are land conservation practices, and we track how those are occurring across the watershed by our various uh, stakeholders. And then to wrap it up, we look at how much phosphorus then gets into the, into the river system or the stream system that is constantly, you know, essentially pumping water into our main lakes 
And then after all that, it's sort of at the, as you get to the end of the funnel there, what happens to in the lakes themselves? What are, what are the water quality responses? So we look at those those five general areas. And I, I would say to the, your other, your, one of your first questions there is what's happening in the watershed to control these things. That's, that's that land conservation practices piece um, in particular that we are always trying to encourage either through grants or information, uh, getting people inspired to, to uh, you know, put in a rain garden or if you're a farmer, put in cover crops or something that will keep the the soil in place or keep runoff or uh, keep rainfall where where it falls and and limit the amount of runoff that gets into lakes that's kind of the, those are the types of actions that we're talking about and now like i said before you've been doing these reports for uh, about a decade now many many years so what sort of trends have you seen over the past decade in terms of the the health of our lakes you know we we we've seen well, for one uh we we've seen more practices uh, more of those projects those land based activities that are going to be uh, lake friendly we're seeing more of those being adopted so whether it's stakeholders in our in our cities or stakeholders out in our rural or more agricultural areas there's a lot that's being done to make the the watershed a, a healthier place to live it's more lake friendly if you will, and uh, we're also seeing a, we've seen the impacts of, of, of those actions in terms of less phosphorus in each each sort of unit of water that's getting into the lakes. If you imagine many, many, many gallons of water is falling from the sky and following stream stream channels and, and running off the land, and it's all going to the lowest elevation point, which is our lakes. So that, that process is, is ongoing. But we're also seeing that with each rainfall of a certain amount, we're getting less phosphorus concentration in that water that's getting in, in, into the lakes. The problem, sort of the flip side on this, uh, or the negative aspect, is that we're seeing a, a wetter climate. So rainfall, uh, you know, the total amount of rainfall that falls across the watershed each year has, has uh, steadily increased. So we're, we're not only getting wetter, but we're, we're seeing these, these uh, rainfalls happening, like I mentioned earlier, in the, over the winter um, when the ground is frozen. We're also seeing more intense rainfall, even outside of winter, you know, so heavy spring, summer rain events where a lot of water falls in a short period of time. That water can absorb into the soil or infiltrate into the soil, so it just races off through storm sewers or through drainage channels and gets into the lakes. And now, as you mentioned before, and as you say in your report, Dane County saw less rainfall in the first half of last year, which sort of helped to keep some of this phosphorus out of the lakes. But it's not really a surprise to anyone that that hasn't been the case this year, at least so far. How will this year's high rainfall affect the the phosphorus levels in the lakes this year? You know, will this have a pretty big difference on the impact of the lakes or are there other factors that could keep those phosphorus levels down? Yeah, it's a great question, and because there are so many variables at play, you know, we've, we're we're sort of in this conversation talking a lot about rainfall as a driver of of uh, phosphorus pollution, which turns our lakes green. But there's lots of variables at play, and and one of those, uh, as mentioned, is is the timing uh, and the intensity of the rainfall. Another is 
what are we doing on the land as people who live and play and work in, 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 a, in a, a larger watershed? What are we, how are we living and playing and, and working on that land? And, and how are those actions affecting how water moves through the system? And so that, that plays a large, large role. Um, and then you have the sort of the biology of the lakes themselves. The, the, the lakes are these living organisms, and they contain a, 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 a massive food web of um, different organisms that are actually affecting water quality. So it's, it's, it's not this direct linear relationship where, oh, more rainfall, okay, that means the, the lakes are going to be in poor quality or less rainfall, the, the, the lakes are going to be, you know, clear um, because, because of that. It's unfortunately not that simple. It's what, what also keeps us as managers and, and lake scientists uh, oftentimes guessing uh, how our lakes are, are going to respond. But what I'd like to tell your listeners is that what, one of the hopeful things that people should be aware of is that our lakes are very responsive. They they will respond favorably once you start to limit the amount of human sort of influenced phosphorus levels that are getting in, into the water. And we're, we're seeing that. We're seeing the effects, effects of that. We'd like to see more of it. And yes, there's more, more that has to be done in order for us to see more sustained water quality changes, but it's certainly possible. I've been talking with Paul Dearlove, Deputy Director and Chief Science Officer with the Clean Lakes Alliance, about their annual State of the Lakes report. Now you can read their full report for yourself online over at cleanlakesalliance.org. Paul, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. I appreciate it. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Jonah Chester, here with my co-host, Sean Bull. Thanks for joining us. We go now to May 3rd, 1969, when a block party became a riot. Stu Levitan reports on the epical events that began 54 years today, 54 years ago today, sorry about that, on this week's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s The Mifflin Street Block Party Riots Part 1 The flyers are posted around downtown on April 29, 1969 a group calling itself the International Werewolf Conspiracy, its membership as mysterious as its name, advertising a party that Saturday in the 500 block of West Mifflin Street. The illustration is of a man with a bandolero, with a call for armed love and to off the pig. The Mifflanders don't care that they don't have a permit. Lots of neighborhoods throw block parties without official sanction. Cops had even directed traffic for a no-permit party on West Gilman Street just the week prior. But Mifland is the neighborhood radical leader Tom Hayden called one of America's liberated zones, where the police aren't so friendly. 
Police Chief Wilbur Emery schedules extra men for Saturday afternoon and arranges with Sheriff Vernon Jack Leslie for a 100 deputy sheriffs to be on standby. The chief does not consult with the new mayor, Bill Dyke, sworn in only two weeks earlier. Detective Tom McCarthy, one of several officers seriously injured at the riot following the anti-Dow protest in October 1967, is looking forward to the weekend as a return engagement. We're going to bring the war to Mifflin Street, he vows. On Saturday, May 3rd, organizers set up some speakers on the porch at 512 West Mifflin, and by 3 o'clock, a crowd of a few dozen is grooving to a Janis Joplin record Allison Claremont is playing. Then Police Inspector Herman Thomas, the department's number two man, shows up and tells Claremont to turn it down. She tells him to get a warrant. He pushes his way through the crowd and pulls the plug himself before relenting and letting the music stay on at a lower volume. But as soon as Thomas leaves, the volume returns, with dancers now spilling into the street. Officers cite the ban on block parties and push them back on the sidewalk. Thomas is at the station, gathering eight more officers, in riot gear. We're going down there to crack some skulls, he tells them, returning to the scene about 4.15. Thomas uses a squad car loudspeaker to order everyone out of the street. The crowd responds with rocks and vulgar catcalls, and someone sticks a roasted pig's head near the car. Baton-wielding police start pushing into the crowd and making isolated arrests, including alderperson Paul Soglin for failing to obey a lawful order, namely driving on the street they're supposedly trying to keep open. As his constituents watch in outrage, police pull Soglin out of his 1959 Triumph convertible and put him into their paddy wagon. Soglin had planned to follow the paddy wagon to the city county building to find out who had been arrested. He is soon among their number. Before he's bailed out, jailers cut Soglin's hair. By 5 p.m., there are 30 officers, all but a handful in riot gear, arrayed down the middle of the street, and about 500 youth on lawns, porches, and roofs. A handful hurl rocks and bottles. Thomas later claims they even throw feces. Alderperson Eugene Parks, elected a month earlier as Madison's first black alderman, pleads in vain with Thomas to let the party go on. He tells the crowd to cool it while he appeals to Mayor Dyke and Chief Emery. But when Parks returns around six, without being able to contact either, he's booed and jeered, and a smoke bomb is thrown to within a few feet of the squad car he's speaking from. As if by signal, more rocks fly. Enough of this nonsense, Thomas declares, and unleashes his officers to dispense the crowd. He later says they could proceed, quote, in whatever manner they saw fit. Shedding the restraints they showed during the Black Study strike on campus in February, they charge with nightsticks up and are hit with a hail of rocks and bricks. Thomas deploys tear gas, withdraws his men for about an hour, and calls for county and university support. 122 more officers respond. For the next several hours, there's pandemonium as small affinity groups engage in hit-and-run battles with police, often in coordinated attacks and ambushes. A nearby building project provides a ready supply of bricks. County deputies pump out massive amounts of tear gas with their new Smith & Wesson 
pepper-fogger, spraying gas at a distance of up to 200 yards. A toxic cloud settles over the three flats. Sometimes police hurl tear gas canisters right inside an apartment, including into the Dayton Street apartment of radical history professor Harvey Goldberg. Two members of the Young Socials Alliance liberate a flatbed truck and block the intersection of West Washington Avenue and North Bassett Street. With mattresses and furniture, it's reminiscent of scenes from the radical riots in Paris precisely a year prior. It's a perfect perch for a group of about 40 to launch volleys of rocks and bricks at approaching police, who are twice driven back until they finally overrun the rampart. Police draw blood and sometimes their weapons. One officer brandishes his revolver at students who briefly have him cornered. Another puts his gun to the head of an arrestee. A third throws a rock through the window of the Mifflin Co-op. The crowd blocks Bassett Street with material from a pipe-laying project and sets trash fires. When police vehicles knock the burning barricades down, they're set back up, just to be knocked down again. By the time Soglin returns at about 9 p.m., his ward looks like a war zone, with clouds of tear gas visible from blocks away. When he calls for calm over a squad car loudspeaker, a rock crashes through the windshield, splattering him with glass. After a brief lull, the chaos resumes and spreads to State Street. An uneasy calm finally comes about 12.30 Sunday morning. It doesn't last long. Police make 25 arrests. 15 policemen and 13 youth are injured. The most serious injury is to a policeman who suffers broken ribs from being hit by a brick. Police Chief Wilbur Emery, who doesn't arrive on scene until 8.30 at night, later tells a mayoral commission investigating the riot that he, quote, couldn't think of any different tactics to take other than what was being done. Detective McCarthy thinks it went well. We went down there and bombed the shit out of them, he says later. The troubles aren't over. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WORT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. As the weather begins to warm up, thousands of Wisconsin beachgoers are getting ready to head to lakes and rivers throughout the state. But one beach in western Dane County remains closed to this day. Over six years ago, Mazomany Bottom State Natural Area closed its gate, marking the end of nude swimming on Wisconsin public land. In this archival edition of Parks and Landmarks, feature contributor Sean Bull takes a look at the history of Mazo Beach and ponders its future. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. I should probably start this episode out with a very mild content warning. Today, we're going to discuss a clothing-optional beach and the reasons why it closed. My descriptions will be far from graphic, but still, this one may not be suitable for all audiences. That said, if you force a child who's too young to know what sex is to listen to WORT, you're a bad parent because they're bored out of their mind. With that out of the way, let's head to the beach. When it comes to water recreation, the people of Wisconsin are spoiled for choice. In Dane County alone, we have the Madison Four Lakes, the Yahara River, and half a dozen creeks that feed into them. 
We have Lake Wingra, the Sugar River, a slice of Lake Koshkonong, and more ponds in county parks than are worth counting. On top of all that, we have a little piece of some of the most pristine river for hundreds of miles. The borders of Dane County are fairly simple. With few irregularities, it's mostly rectangular, but about 10 miles of its very northwest corner are cut in a jagged diagonal by the Wisconsin River. Specifically, it's part of the Lower Wisconsin State Riverway, an officially designated nature preserve. Any Dells duck boat tour guide will tell you that the Wisconsin sports over 120 dams, that it's one of the hardest working rivers in the country. That's certainly true, but if the upper and middle sections are the state's hardest working river, the Lower Wisconsin State Riverway is where its water goes to retire. From the Lake Wisconsin Dam at Prairie du Sac, all the way to the Mississippi, the Wisconsin's water flows unrestricted, with not even so much as a beaver dam in sight. Much of the land along this 98-mile stretch is state or government-owned. You'll see individual houses and campgrounds as you float along, but once you leave Sauk City, the only other town you'll notice is Muscaday, about halfway to the confluence with the Mississippi. Unlike the Big River, which the Wisconsin eventually joins, it's remarkably quiet along the banks here. You might hear traffic on a distant country highway, but there are no train tracks flanking the lower Wisconsin's shores. Similarly, the lack of dams keeps the river low and wide. Some experienced fishers know how to keep their boats from getting stuck on sandbars, but for the most part, the only boat traffic is powered by paddles. The intended effect of this is to provide an ideal habitat for wildlife, but in a lot of ways, this is the best part of the river for people too. On any hot summer day, you'll find swimmers and sunbathers crowding the beaches of Sauk City and the sandbars of Spring Green. The lower Wisconsin is generally deep enough to be pleasant to swim, but not too deep to stand far out from the shore. The water also flows fast enough to keep clean, but not fast enough to sweep people away. Generally. That statement requires an asterisk. Swim at your own risk and all that. My point is, People come from far and wide to swim the shores of the river, especially with how filthy the Madison lakes get by midsummer. But there was a time, not so long ago, where they didn't have to drive even as far as Sauk County. Mazo Beach was the colloquial name for a stretch of shore a few miles north of the village of Mazamani. It sits downstream from some private homes and the Mazamani Canoe Landing, and it's part of a much bigger parcel of state property extending inland. It's about a mile from the driveway's entrance off County Highway Y to the actual parking lot by the beach. Though this location makes Mazo Beach quite secluded, it's important that it's just barely still in Dane County. As things like Madison's annual naked bike ride demonstrate, Dane County District Attorneys have long been lenient in regards to prosecuting public nudity. Wisconsin law only states that it is illegal to, quote, publicly and indecently expose one's, quote, genitals or pubic area. And it has long been the stance of the county that exposure has to be pretty explicitly sexual to count as indecent. So, while Mazo Beach was never intended for nude swimmers, its seclusion and jurisdiction inevitably attracted people for that purpose. It's interesting the domino effect that this had. 
An influx of nude swimmers naturally drove away any beach users who were uncomfortable with nudity. In driving away the prudes, they unintentionally created something of a safe space for the LGBT community. Now, this was the late 20th century. I'm sure some naturists were able to overcome the cognitive dissonance and still be homophobic. But the saying goes that those who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And the saying doesn't say this, but I'd venture that those who walk naked in their glass houses have extra reason to be non-judgmental. So, over time, Mazo Beach coalesced into a haven for nudists, LGBT folks, and the left. By the late 90s, the Christian right could no longer ignore such an obvious target, and began a decades-long campaign to close it. When I say that, I don't mean the entire Christian right. Most of the effort was made by Pastor Ralph Ovidal and his hardline non-denominational church. In the late 90s and early 2000s, members of Pilgrim's Covenant Church were a common sight at the entrance to Mazo Beach. They would picket and heckle people as they entered, much like you'll see outside a Planned Parenthood clinic today. In 99, the DNR put up a permanent gate at the entrance, meaning visitors had to park their cars along the road, then walk or bike the remaining mile to the beach. This measure was meant to make it difficult to enter the beach quickly, and thereby discourage its use as a site for hookups. But this wasn't enough for Pastor Ovidal's followers. They believed that any nudity at the beach was intolerable, as it was causing direct harm to children. Like any other beach, parents would bring children of all ages to Mazo, and this was a big rallying point for the people most strongly against the nude beach. Their concerns ranged wildly from the children's innocence will be ruined seeing naked adults to they'll be targeted by the predatory gays, all the way up to the big theory that people were bringing cameras to the beach to shoot child pornography. To a modern audience, these claims seem unfounded at best and virulently homophobic at worst, but I don't think they played that well 20 years ago either. There was never much evidence of harm to children at Mazo Beach, so to advance things politically, its opponents had to focus on illegal drugs and public sex. Over the years, the DNR tried everything to stop people from enjoying themselves too much at the beach. They put up that gate, they restricted open hours, they even cut down shrubs to give people fewer places to hide. And yet, every time they did a week of surveillance, they would always arrest people for sex or drugs. Now, the nude beach culture is not blameless here. Mazo Beach was renowned as a place where people could be themselves, and I'm sure some people took that too far. But can I let you guys in on a little secret? Every park is like that. You shouldn't go looking for illicit activity in parks for the same reason you shouldn't bring a blacklight to a hotel. It's better for your own enjoyment to leave some things unseen. Ultimately, that was the problem. Mazo Beach was seen by everybody. What once was a quiet shoreline in a nature preserve was now a spectacle. People just can't resist gossiping about a beach where people get naked, have drugs, and do sex. In 2012, the New York Times wrote a piece on the Mazo Beach controversy. The following year, it was written about all the way on the other side of the Atlantic by the Daily Mail. And you know what they were writing about? Honestly? A pretty mediocre swimming hole. 
Perhaps it's been neglected, or it's just the way the river bends and deposits things, but little pebbles pepper the sand here in a way that looks uncomfortable to walk or lay on. Other nearby beaches don't have this issue, so it kind of makes Mezo Beach immediately and noticeably inferior. Finally, in 2016, the DNR gave up. They closed Mezo Beach permanently, at least for the swimmable months of the year. There's a master plan in place to refurbish it, to make it a more traditional swim beach and canoe landing. But it's been six years, and there's been no progress. In truth, without its defining gimmick, Mezo Beach doesn't seem as unique or necessary. Mezomani has a great separate canoe landing only a couple miles away, and if you want to go swimming, Sauk City isn't much farther. Despite finally being free of its dogged opposition, the future of Mezo Beach seems as uncertain as ever. Only time will tell what it holds. For WORT News, I'm Sean Bull. This year marks the 20th anniversary of the UW Odyssey Project, a program at UW-Madison offering classes to adult students facing economic barriers to college. Tonight is the graduation ceremony for this year's Odyssey class, where students will celebrate two semesters of hard work through the program studying literature, art, philosophy, and poetry. On yesterday's 8 o'clock buzz, host Breon Somerville spoke with Brian Benford, former Madison Alder and success coach with the program, about what makes the Odyssey program different from other educational programs. Well, as a licensed social worker, we're taught to meet the person where they're at. And I can't think of anything that epitomizes that, like the Odyssey Project. Many of your listeners might have heard of the Wisconsin Idea, and I can't think of a better example of the Wisconsin Idea. And real simplified version is taking the research-based information, breaking down the walls and barriers and offering that to the citizens of the state of Wisconsin. So that's exactly what Odyssey does. In my role as the social worker and success coach, we're having many students that I had mentioned the horrendous racial disparities within Madison. So they're overcoming systems of oppression, systemic racism, lack of uh, affordable housing, the lack of sustainable living wage jobs, the lack of child care, and the list goes on, mm -hmm. where we take a person-centered approach and we figure out how we can take away some of those barriers. For example, if I have a student that's facing housing insecurity, we can help provide rent and a security deposit to get them stabilized. Mm -hmm. We can help provide food. We can help provide that emotional, psychological support that many educational opportunities cannot do. This is gonna sound really corny, but when I tell people about Odyssey, to me and so many others, it's a program that's grounded in love. As I was talking about the history of our director, Emily Auerbach, both of her parents met at Berea College, a free college in Kentucky. And just looking at how they came together in that educational context that was free. And then their daughter, who carried on that legacy, or who carries on that legacy. So, you know, I often say, what educational experience can you say was grounded in love? 
many times people walk in, there's hugs involved. In my own personal journey, I'm a cancer survivor. I've faced many of the challenges that many of our students faced. And what got me through was the tremendous network, the support from the alumni, which I call my Odyssey family. They were there to keep me going when things got really hard. Uh, I got my master's degree at 60 years old, and the only way I could do that was the tremendous support of not only the Odyssey team, but also all of the fellow alumni that helped to encourage me on. So it's a real unique educational opportunity, and what I would invite listeners, anyone interested, is once again, go to odyssey.wisc.edu, and you can actually find out more information, and if you're interested, you can enroll. Part of the guidelines of a enrolling in Odyssey is you have to have a, a high school or a GED, a high school diploma or a GED, and uh, there's certain income requirements. And fill out the application and uh, you'll see it's a life-changing experience. That was Brian Benford talking with Breon Somerville on the 8 o'clock buzz about the UW Odyssey Project, which celebrates its graduation ceremony this evening. That was just an excerpt of their full conversation, which can be found online at wortfm.org. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer was David Ahrens. Special thanks to feature contributors Stu Levitan, Sean Bull, and Breon Somerville. Chuck Kateman engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Weggie Hout produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Jonah Chester. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. <laughs>